Welcome to Writer Spark, the podcast with tips and tricks about fiction writing. I'm your host, Melissa Bourbon, national best-selling author, developmental fiction editor, writing coach, and instructor. When I started my writing journey, learning about the industry and the craft of writing wasn't as easy as it is now. I wish I knew then what I know now, and that is what Writer Spark is all about. I'm paying it forward, so to speak. I want new and aspiring authors to learn from those who came before and who are living the writing life. That's what this podcast is all about. There are episodes on craft topics and there are conversations with authors because I strongly believe we learn from each other. Wherever you are on your writing path, WriterSpark is for you. Check out our courses on our website, www.writersparkacademy.com. And if you enjoy the WriterSpark podcast, please follow and share with your writing friends. Like and subscribe. Today, my guest is John Dedakis, author of The Lark Chadwick Mysteries. John is a former editor on CNN's The Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer, and he's a former White House correspondent. His writing, both with plots and characters, reflects his time and experience as a journalist. Today, John and I are talking about writing from a perspective that's different from your own, whether that means gender, race, or ethnicity. John's protagonist, Lark, is a woman, and in book one, she is 22 years old, so very different from who he is. The old writing adage says to write what you know, but that's really not realistic, nor is it reflective of the world, so how do you really do that? And the answer is you don't. This is an interesting and important topic, and I hope you enjoy today's podcast. So grab a cup of something tasty, settle in, and get ready to ignite your writer spark. Thank you so much for joining me on the Writer Spark podcast, John Dedakis. Welcome. Thanks, Melissa. I am so glad that you're here with me, and I would love to just kind of launch in and hear a little bit about your origin story as a writer. Everybody comes to writing from sort of a different background, different perspective with different goals, and you've got a very illustrious career. So I'd like to hear how that led you to fiction writing. Well, I didn't start out to be a writer. I started out actually to be a lawyer, and then I was going to use the law as a stepping stone to get into politics. And if my career trajectory had turned out the way I had expected, I would have been, you know, in at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, for the good of the country, I decided to go in a different direction. Uh, ended up going into journalism back in the late 60s when the Vietnam War was in all the papers. It was a big deal. And um, I guess, I mean, I have a, about a 45-year career in journalism, but uh, and everything was cruising along pretty well with that. I covered the White House. I went to CNN in 1988 as a, as a writer. But I guess that I started to get really serious about writing fiction when uh, CNN made me an editor. Um, it paid better, but it was tedious. It was fault-finding. And so I needed a creative outlet. And so um, I wrote a novel as if it's that easy. Right. I mean, the novel I wrote, the first novel I wrote took 10 years to get the agent that I've got. It went through 14 major revisions and she's the 39th agent that I queried. But 
I made a lot of mistakes along the way. And I tell my writing students, if you take good notes, I'll save you nine years in the process. Yeah. <laughs> and so I've written like five novels now. I'm working on my sixth. And I retired from CNN in 2013, 10 years ago. So um, I've basically glided into a new career. Well, your 39th agent query, I feel like that's actually pretty good. <laughs> you know, there are people that send out a hundred or more. And I don't know that yeah. I ever counted mine, but I feel like it was above the 50 mark. So 39, impressive. Well, and impressive that you didn't give up. I mean, and that I think is is often what happens. People get discouraged. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I can't think of who said this quote and I referenced it uh, in a different podcast recently, but you know, the difference between somebody who succeeds and somebody who fails is the person who succeeds never gave up. That's it. Yeah. That's exactly it. Well, um, so tell me a little bit about your novels before we jump into our topic. I've written uh, five mystery suspense thriller novels. I write in the first person as a young woman in her 20s. I'm neither of those. Will it, will it, we can talk about that. Right. Um, that's our topic. Uh-huh. And, and she, I mean, you, you write what you know. And I mean, I think anybody uh, who's, who's written understands that. And I know journalism. So all of my novels have a journalism backdrop. And what I've, what ended up happening is that with the political climate, the way it is, um, there are a lot of people who really think seriously that at CNN, we sat around thinking, how are we going to get a Barack Obama elected president? Mm -hmm. You know, it is a firing offense to uh, conduct your journalism that way or to make things up. So a lot of my novels, all of my novels, I think give people, especially people who know nothing about journalism, a glimpse behind the scenes as to how it's, how it's done. That's interesting. And one of the things uh, that you said that I read on your website is that your books maintain the concept of journalistic integrity and also the mentoring relationships with, I think is really important um, in terms of bringing up new journalists, right? With that sense of integrity and the sense of how it really should be done. Exactly. And, you know, my protagonist's name is Lark Chadwick, and her mentor is Lionel Stone. He's a former New York Times editor, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner. Uh, He's retired to his uh, home state of Wisconsin, where Lark comes across him because she has just had um, a a major loss in her life. She's found the body of the aunt who raised her from infancy, and that trauma launches her on a search to find out more about the car accident uh, that killed her parents. And so she gets a newspaper clipping and discovers to her astonishment that she is the miracle baby who survived a car train collision, but no one had ever told her. Hmm. So she convinces Lionel to let her do a follow-up story. Two of her sources are the mayor and the sheriff of this small Wisconsin town. Uh, each guy, each guy is running for Congress. The election is one week away and each person has a secret that will unravel the mystery. Um, and so, you know, she and Lionel, uh, uh, Lionel hires her to be a reporter and her, her new career is launched. Okay. Interesting. So our topic today is writing from a perspective different from your own, specifically a gender different from your own. But I do think that parlays into writing from other perspectives, whether that's race or ethnicity or 
you know, I don't know how, whatever other perspectives there are. For example, I have a character who's Latina and I'm clearly not Latina. My husband is first generation Mexican American and that character is much based on his family. So I feel like mm-hmm. I have this, you know, real connection to that, um, which, you know, in, in my mind makes that okay, you know, but there right. are people who don't feel that way. And when you're writing as a male from the perspective of a 20, what did you say? 25 year old female. She starts I, 22. Yeah. Okay. So, so what, first of all, what made you make that decision? And then let's just talk about the, the pros and the cons of that and what's easy and what's difficult about that. Fair enough. I, uh, the reason I started writing as a woman was just when I started writing my, my first novel, someone suggested that I should write in a way that stretches who I am. Never been a woman, not in this life. <laughs> so I gave it a try and discovered that it was more accessible than I expected because I discovered emotions are not gender specific. We all have the exact same emotions. It's just that in my experience, the women in my life are more articulate about their emotions. They're more willing to share them. They draw from a more varied emotional palette. And um, when I was working at CNN for 25 years, that's 25 years worth of young women, mostly in their early to mid 20s, who were who were interns and new hires. And I'd talk to them about what it's like to be a woman. Um, and they talked to me about their careers, their boyfriends, their girlfriends, their um, um, <clears throat> families. And I would listen and I would just um, learn a lot about that. And then many of them became my beta readers. Um, I discovered years later that there's a deeper reason I write as a woman. Um, and this really goes to part of the creative process, which is your subconscious. And um, my youngest son uh, died in a, uh, w- uh, from a heroin overdose about 11 years ago. And I went through grief counseling, which, you know, any kind of a therapy situation is a great way to get to know yourself better. And so when they invited me, I went through for two and a half years. And after I left grief counseling, they asked me to do, uh, to come back and give a speech for a fundraising banquet. As I was writing my speech, I realized that the deeper reason I write as a woman is that I'm trying to create a a character I wish my sister had allowed herself to become. Because my sister was brilliant. Um, She could have been a concert pianist. She could have been a surgeon. But um, her husband basically said, what would it look like a football coach married to a surgeon? And so one by one, she gave up her dreams And 20 years later, went into the garage, closed the door, turned on the ignition and killed herself. And so that's the first chapter of my first novel. And it was a catharsis to write it. But I didn't realize until much later that Lark really is who Georgia could have been. Because Lark doesn't let a guy define who she is. She's not a victim. She still falls for the bad boys, but she's got a little more... Um, spine, I guess, in in being able to chart her own course. So it's a complicated uh, explanation, but it really comes down to knowing yourself, being able to tap into your subconscious, and being open to the people around you, alert to your surroundings, your inner life, 
and uh, and then just you know plucking that from re, uh, from your subconscious. Do you think that your choice to write as Lark as this female was in part to try to understand your sister's perspective and what she was going through? I don't think so. Um, I think that it was primarily, at least the first, the first novel was just trying to, for lack of a better word, memorialize that particular scene. I mean, I was on the scene the day she died. And so because it was such a profound experience, I was able to access it and, 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 and write about it. But I don't think anything beyond that was going on. I think really what was going on is I wanted to write a book and you write what you know. And so I was accessing what was familiar territory. The decision to write as a female was it, that's how it just came to you with the first book. Did you intend for this to be a series featuring the same character or did that also evolve? That evolved. I mean, I think, at least in my experience as a writing teacher and coach, I think a lot of people struggle with just that first book. Mm -hmm. Um, And they, and often they feel like they've got to shoehorn all of their ideas into that one story. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so then it gets to be 200,000 words long and they wonder why nobody's, you know, (laughs) accepting it. And so I discovered that, you know, you take a lot of those ideas and you put them aside for the next novel. And so it, it has, it, it evolved into a series. How has Lark's growth evolved along with the series and the mysteries that you develop that are, I imagine, uh, somewhat independent of the one that was in the initial book connected to her aunt? You know, it's it's hard to have characters evolve in general, especially when you really connect with them on, you know, certain levels. But as a male writing, as a young or female, you know, we, we want to see her evolve as a person, right? And grows. How does that work? Well, it means that you need to have good beta readers in your life. Mm-hmm. And the growth, I think anybody, I think it's a good idea to bake shortcomings into your protagonist mm-hmm. and, you know, struggles because you know, it, chances are your protagonist is going to be drawn from yourself to a certain extent. And you know that you've got shortcomings and struggles and imperfections. So if you can bake some of those in, then you've got something to work with. And so in Lark's case, you know, she's kind of impulsive. She's got anger issues. And so that gets her into a lot of trouble. And there's blowback. And so you, she's learned from the mistakes she's made so that she still wrestles with some of those things, but she's learned to channel some of that anger as well. I, 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 uh, I gave a talk at a library uh, once, and one of and the librarian said that one of the things she liked about my stories is that Lark does evolve. Mm-hmm. You know that there really is some a growth arc uh, that takes place in her character, which coming from a librarian really meant a lot. Yeah. Does Lark age? How much does she age over the course of the five books you have so far? She's not aged much. She starts at, she's 22 and she's 28 now in the fifth novel. Someone suggested early in the process, if you're going to write a series, you know, don't have your protagonist be 80, you know, give her a little room to, you know, to grow. So, you know, I made Lark nice and young and uh, uh, I see this going on for a long time. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's great. Yeah. I think that's, 
I think that's so important. I, you know, we've had conversations in the past, authors and myself, about how mysteries of the past, the Agatha Christie's, for example, the Rex Doubts, you know, that they have sleuths who don't actually have much character growth, very little. And, and the books are very different than what we have now in the mystery genre, where the growth of the sleuth or the protagonist is equal to the mystery itself. Yes, I think that's. I think you've really nailed it. It's. I think people read books in order to immerse themselves in the lives and problems of the protagonist, and so, uh, in many cases, my novels really grow from something I'm wrestling with in my personal life, and I think that adds a richness to Lark's life that adds texture to the story. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so uh, I think by giving your protagonist a rich personal life just adds so much spice to a story. Where does her name come from, the name Lark? I have no idea. Uh, I really need to check my journals, um, but I, I, I have no idea. But Chadwick, interestingly, uh, uh, one of the uh, b- before I started writing the novel, I was doing a writing exercise. And of course, a lot of p- prep work is involved in writing a novel just to be able to understand what your story is going to be, who your characters are. So I was writing a, an, an exercise that was just a fact recitation of a car train collision that I witnessed when I was nine years old. And I mean, I was in the dome car of this train and uh, we were going, I was near the front. I was able to see the tracks ahead and out of the corner of my eye, this car came out of nowhere, crossed right in front of us. We hit him. All this debris comes down on the dome. We stopped. Three people were killed in the car. And um, a woman who was on the train with me said, well, I live near here. I'll send you a newspaper clipping. 40 years later, I was still waiting for the newspaper clipping. And as I was writing this personal writing exercise, um, I remembered this goes back to your subconscious again. I remembered a radio news report I heard the week after the accident, 40 years earlier, about a car train collision in which an infant survived. And I began to play what if. What if that kid grew up and wanted to find out more about her past? Well, as it turns out, um, fast track deals with such an accident and it happened in the Northern Illinois town of Chadwick, Chadwick, Illinois. So Lark is Lark Chadwick because of Chadwick, Illinois. That's, that's so interesting. I think that it's so, um, cool to hear the stories that authors bring in from their personal lives and how those end up woven into, you know, characters or plots or, you know, series as a whole. That's, that's interesting. When I think of Lark, I mean, I, I, you know, I hear the definition of Lark, which is kind of like, I did something on a Lark, like free and easy. And it almost creates this dichotomy within her possibly. Yes, she said that. In fact, in that early, uh, in that first book, she said, really, you know, my mom named me that because I was, as a baby, happy as a lark. But if she were to name me now, it would be Basset Hound uh, Chadwick. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's clever. Uh, okay. So, you know, part of what this podcast is about is offering sort of 
tips or tricks or just thoughts to new writers, to aspiring writers, to writers who want to continue to grow? Because I feel like we are always growing as writers, no matter where we are in our careers. And so I want to talk about, first of all, what what were the easy things you encountered writing a protagonist of a different gender? And then what were some of the challenges, the biggest challenges that you encountered in this process and continue maybe to encounter in this process? I think for me, writing dialogue comes easily because broadcast journalism is writing for the ear. So it's meant to be conversational. And so probably the easiest thing for me then and now was writing dialogue. And, and so a lot of my first drafts are almost exclusively dialogue. Mm-hmm. If I can get characters talking to each other, then I can move the story along and uh, things start happening. Uh, <clears throat> hardest for me is description. And that happens in the rewrite. Um, and, and, and of course, it always I get a laugh out of the fact that some people say, oh, I love your descriptions, if they only knew. Um, because, I mean, you know, as I said, uh, uh, Fast Track went through 14 major revisions. I think it wasn't until like the 10th or 11th uh, iteration that there's a scene near the end of the book that happens in a crowded diner on a Saturday morning. And, you know, there's just a lot of hubbub going on. Something happens and the place you know, just comes to a halt and no one says anything. And it wasn't until the rewrite that I heard the bacon and eggs sizzling on the grill. Mm -hmm. So uh, the hardest thing, at least initially, was being able to access those sensory details and those details about a scene that make it vivid and make it come alive. It's the show, don't tell part. Do you think that writing those descriptions is gender specific? Does Lark see the world differently than you might or than a male character might? Oh, definitely. Because one of the things I discovered in talking to my female friends is uh, there was one woman at CNN. I, I said, you know, what's it like for guys to come on to you all the time? And she said, and this was really eye-opening. She said, I can determine in the first 20 seconds if it's safe. I never have to worry about whether it's safe. Mm-hmm. But a woman, I discovered, is playing defense all mm-hmm. the time. And so that factors into Lark's psyche. You know, a guy who's friendly, mm, what's really going on here? Mm-hmm. So she's much more skeptical than I ever am in a relationship or have been. And so that's the type of thing, understanding a woman's sort of place in the world and how she navigates that impacts the description that you write and how she sees everything, really. Yes, because she is she has trust issues with men. And so, you know, she she sizes them up pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So you mentioned that Lark has a male mentor who's older. Yep. How much of that character is you? Well, sure. I mean, <laughs> I'm old for numbers <laughs> for number one, and I've got some experience as a journalist. Um, so yeah, Lionel is is a lot like me as well. Um, I think it's look. I think it's safe to say that all of us are in our characters, even the villains. So when you're writing, do you find yourself going back to your years at CNN? 
to, um, you know, pull situations and to remember events that happen in conversations and things like that? Yes, there's one in particular. Um, back in the day when uh, 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 CNN first started, the newsroom was the background for the anchor set. So it was a working newsroom, and the uh, the editors sat in a, in the middle of a circular pod, and the writers and the producers sat on the uh, the outer rim, and there were four pods uh, behind the anchors. And this was early in my career at CNN, and I was a writer, so I was on the outer outer rim, and I heard a conversation over my left shoulder between two female producers. One was producing the show that was going to be on shortly. The other had just produced a show that, and everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Mm -hmm. So she was called into Mr. Big's office and it was a male, female dynamic, uh, real power dynamic. And he just, you know, took her apart. You're terrible. You're awful. You did this wrong. So now she's back in the newsroom telling her girlfriend about this story. And I'm listening. And at one point in the conversation, she said to her girlfriend, and I told myself, you will not cry. You will not cry. And I'm thinking to myself, if I were in that situation, I would have been saying to myself, you will not punch him out. You will (laughs) not punch him out. And so that bit of dialogue is plucked from reality. And when Lark has an argument with Lionel, she's saying to herself, you will not cry. And I know it's authentic. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you think that you understand women in general better now than you did before you started the series? I do. I think I do. I, it's a learning curve. Um, the my agent is a woman. That helps. Uh, I mentioned my 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 uh, friends, female friends, are beta readers. Um, but one of the things that happened. Oh man, I think it was when Troubled Water, my third novel, came out. Um, a woman reviewed it. I did not know the woman. And she said, all right, I'll admit it. As soon as I saw that it was a guy writing as a woman, I couldn't wait to take this book apart. And she said, after the fifth page, I forgot that it was a man. And That's great. and she's, she really gave it a glowing review as she has for the subsequent ones. So, uh, you know, I know I can't please everybody. I'm sure that there, I mean, th- I, it's not perfect. But I'm I'm pretty happy with the way I've accessed the female psyche. And Carol Costello, one of the anchors I worked with at CNN, she said, you've got a really well-developed female side. I said, is that a good thing? She said, that's a very good thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's an amazing compliment, both that compliment that you you're that you're tapped into that female psyche yourself and that's been observed but then also the reviewer who was ready to take you down didn't i think that's a huge compliment yeah and i mean and i'm a straight male so i mean it's not like you know there's any gender dysphoria going on here mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. i'm pretty clear about who i am but i think melissa the thing i've learned i think i'm i'm a better man because of the sensitivity uh, that I've learned over the years uh, to be sensitive to women and to listen to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's that's a I think that's where men fail a lot, you know. I agree and I think that comes down to you know how society sees men but also how parents parent their boys. You know, I have four boys and one girl and I parented my boys, my husband and I both, to be respectful and to understand their 
relationship to girls and to women as they grew up. And I find that they're, you know, very upstanding, wonderful young men, you know, but I think that that's in great part to how we intentionally parented them. Right. Exactly. And it's it's a learning curve and I, I I have a lot to learn and and we mentioned you know not just other genders but races and stuff like that I was decades before I recognized that I was born on second base at a time when a lot of people didn't have the right to suit up so um, I, I think it was I was late to realizing the privilege mm-hmm. that I had as a white male that's a good um, analogy yeah. Well, uh, let's kind of wrap this up. And if you could give a couple of tips, some sort of specifics that writers can tap into or think about if they want to do what you've done and really dig in, whether it's a protagonist or another point of view character or whatever, um, how they can really do that as authentically as possible. Whoa! How much time do we have? Um, <laughs> I think that there. Like <laughs> I think that there are a lot of things that people do. Number one is just re- recognize that you've got a passion to write, and that means then that if you've got the passion to write, then do your best to write better, to learn how to hone your craft, understand the business. If you want to get published, understand what the parameters are and what's required. Um, write every day. I mean, I journal every day. It's not writing my stories, but the pen keeps moving. Um, It's a communication thing. Um, I think you need to be alert and aware of your surroundings. Ask questions. Get to know other people because that is fueling your subconscious. And that's where your creativity is going to be coming from. Um, I think you go to writers conferences. Writers conferences are a great place to interact with people um, who are like you because writing is a very solitary experience. Mm -hmm. um, And it's even harder because a lot of writers are either introverts or shy. So that means that I think it's important to get out there and realize you're not alone and you can be encouraged by other writers, published authors. You can learn the craft by coming in contact with people uh, who know what they're talking about. Um, And you just, you know, you make friends. Um, Be persistent. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. If the passion is there, then it's just a matter of harnessing it and getting better and better until you, you know, find that sweet spot. And when you're talking about specifically writing from a different perspective than your own, whether that's gender or race, ethnicity, have you found it easy to talk to other people? One thing that has come up in previous podcasts kind of related to this topic is that, you know, you need to do your research. You can't just write from your own perspective and think that, you know, you have to talk to people. Have you found that to be easy and that, that the women specifically that you spoke with at CNN that are your beta readers, et cetera, are, you know, excited to share their experiences with you so that you get it right? Here's what I've discovered. Part of it is knowing yourself. And I've discovered over the years that I am um, a shy extrovert with introvert tendencies. I think I'm the same. And and this came to a, a head for me when I was covering the 
19, I think it was the 1984 presidential election in, uh, in, uh, New, in uh, New Hampshire, the New Hampshire primary. And I was, you know, in Manchester, New Hampshire on the main street doing, you know, at six in the morning doing person on the street interviews. And it's basically, who are you going to vote for? It took me 20 minutes to get the courage to ask somebody because I was afraid of being rejected or, you know, fake news or whatever. Mm -hmm. So at first it wasn't easy, but what I've discovered is that if you have introvert or shy tendencies, that's daunting when it comes to interacting with someone. And so my suggestion, especially if this is you, ask questions, because as soon as you do, the spotlight is on the other person. Right. And when we give other people the permission to talk about themselves, they won't shut up. Unless they're and, shy also. <laughs> you, well, I mean, but I, yes, but, you know, a shy person still has a lot going on. Mm -hmm. And if they really sense that you're curious, then they really will blossom. I've, I can't tell you the number of times that people, shy people especially, will say, I've never told this to anybody before and we just met mm -hmm. um, because I'm curious. Um, I'm relentlessly curious, which, which can be a blessing and a curse. Um, I've discovered though that uh, two things I've discovered and then I'll shut up. One <laughs> is um, I've been at like a cocktail party and I'm pummeling someone, you know, just to get to know them. And then there's a net, there's a point in the conversation where silence is golden and you shut up and it's a great opportunity for the conversation to pivot and they'll ask you a question. By this time, they're just waiting for the next question. Yeah. The other thing I've learned, and this is, my wife is an introvert and it, you know, I've been married 40, 40 years. I think it was 40 years that it took me to realize she's an introvert because she talks to me, but I only get three questions with her. And then she goes, and that's all I want to say about that. <laughs> so she's one of my toughest interviews. That's funny. Yeah, I have found that um, I'm the shy introvert, extrovert. What did you say? Introverted extrovert. <laughs> um, so, I'm an ambivert. There we go. And I'm great at asking open-ended questions. And yeah. but what I find is that, like you said, when that conversation might naturally pivot, yeah, you don't get asked questions in return, there isn't that right. reciprocity, which I find so interesting. And I'm okay with it, generally speaking. But exactly. on the other hand, I think, huh, why don't they want to know about me? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because you've put them on the pedestal. Mm -hmm. Because look, I think that we live in a society that, you know, you'd never know it when you look at politics. But I think for the most part, in interpersonal relationships, we're polite. We don't want to offend. We don't want to make people uncomfortable. Therefore, if you listen to conversations, we are great at skimming across the surface. Mm -hmm. And what I tell my students, I give a, a class, I teach a class on interviewing. And I said, you know, learn to go deep. Because as soon as you give, when you go deep, you've really given them permission to open up. And, uh, but they need to know it's safe. They need to know that you're not going to be judgy. Mm -hmm. um, and once people are comfortable with that, you can really get to know someone on a much deeper level. Okay. So that is your great advice for anybody wanting to write about something that's just outside of their normal 
area of expertise. You know, write what you know, yes, but you can't only write what you know. You've got to research and say, you've just got to figure out how to put yourself out there and ask those open-ended questions. And I think once you start, it gets easier and easier and easier. Absolutely, it does. And I'll say another thing about research, because um, I think that if you're right, especially if you're writing historical fiction or something like that, um, you can, you can, I think a lot of people never really get to the point where they're ready to write their first draft because they've never quite finished their research. And the point is that you can never know everything about everything. So you'll be down that rabbit hole forever. And so my suggestion is write that first draft. And if there's something you don't know, you can do a, maybe a quick Google or Wikipedia search, but then get back to writing. And then if you hit a wall, imagine, put yourself in the situation and just try to figure it out, get all the way to the end, because that will identify what questions you really do need to ask to do your research. Your, your research will then be targeted to what the need is in the story, as opposed to finding out everything about everything. Yeah, Great points. And I think also understanding what your character's goals are, and especially when you're talking men and women, sometimes their goals might be different or on different emotional no. levels. So you got <laughs> no. to understand, you know, you need to understand what are Lark's goals emotionally, as well as, you know, the external plot. Exactly. And I think part, at least in Lark's case, there's a lot of time where she's not sure. Mm-hmm. She's still just trying to figure it out. And, uh, and, and that's, I think, part of life too. You know, it's, we sometimes only have enough light for the next step. Well, this has been such a great conversation and I'm so glad to have spoken with you about it. Tell us what is next. So what book just came out number five and then what's next for you? Uh, book five is uh, called Fake. Lark is a White House correspondent. She is the victim of fake news. And uh, and it's also in the era of hashtag Me Too. So she's got a lot on her plate. Um, book six is a work in progress. It takes place about six months, maybe even less than six months after fake ends. So um, she's still in this White House maelstrom. Um, she and the president are pretty good friends, actually, and uh, that also makes for some complications. I would, I'm, I am still pl- uh, groping my way toward the end, but I think that abortion is going to be a part of it. I think that QAnon is probably going to be a factor, and I think mental illness will be, you know, a plot device in there as well. So you um, so are hitting on a lot of important and and timely topics. Yeah, and then I've also I've got a memoir that's in the fourth draft that uh, is now in the hands of my beta readers. My main beta reader is my wife, which means it may never see the light of day. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's that's great. So your intent is to publish the memoir traditionally. Well, my desire is, mm-hmm. uh, but we'll see. I mean, mm-hmm. the working title is what Alfred Hitchcock told me and more a life of plot twists, pivotal moments in my life that brought me to where I am. Because life doesn't, life doesn't turn out the way you expect. Never. It never does. No. (laughs) Best laid plans, right? Well, thank you again for being here with us. I really, really appreciate it. And best of luck with everything. And I would love to have you back to talk about another topic sometime. Thanks, Melissa. This has been fun. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast with John Dedakis. If you're like me and like bookish and writerly products, check out the WriterSpark Tea Public Store. Remember to like and subscribe to this podcast. And if you're checking us out on YouTube, subscribe there. Come back for more tips and tricks about fiction writing and learn more about our online courses at www.writersparkacademy.com. There is also a collection of resource books now, including the Fiction Writer's Character Bible, as well as Writing a Cozy Mystery Case Files, and a companion workbook. So check all of those things out at writersparkacademy.com. I'm Melissa Bourbon. Thank you for listening, and until next time, happy writing.